My name is Albert, and I'm an alcoholic. And by the grace of God and the fellowship of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and people like you and assemblies like this and my pretty Al-Anon wife, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since September the 7th of 1973, and for that I'm eternally grateful. I also, like Sally, am so honored and privileged to be a part of the West Texas Al-Anon Alateen Assembly. I have uh, great love for the Al-Anons, and in particular, my Al-Anon. And whenever I have an opportunity, I like to say, at least one time, that my Al-Anon is not an Al-Anon because she's married to an alcoholic. My Al-Anon is an Al-Anon because she goes to Al-Anon And she puts the principles of the program in her life and into our love for each other and into our relationship and most of all into the healing process of our home, which is so necessary. I want to thank Bobby and, and Mitch and, and the committee and, and all of the people who are responsible for inviting us. I made a terrible mistake at, uh, at dinner this evening. I uh, asked an alcoholic question to, uh, to Bobby. I had looked at the program and I saw three speakers on at the same time. And so I said to Bobby, what is the format for this evening? And you shouldn't ask Al-Anon's questions like that. Because <laughs> the answer was, we're going to put the three of you back to back and let you talk at the same time. And would you just let it unfold the way we want it to unfold? So I knew I was at an Al-Anon assembly. I mean, I just understood that from the very beginning. I uh, just amazed listening to Ann get started up here through that cheerleading session and American Bandstand or whatever that was on the, the other side over there. There's some of them that haven't made it here yet. I, I could hear them on the other side of the hall. But, you know, Ann talked about feelings and she wanted to feel and I thought how marvelous it is to to be able to stand here at 17 and talk about feelings because it was 46 years of age because before I could talk about feelings and the other thing that she talked about was was honesty and I just have to tell you you know I didn't know what honesty was until I got to the program I always had that feeling of inadequacy that she talked about, that not feeling as good as or feeling better than or not wanting to be where I was or if I got where I thought I wanted to be, I didn't want to be there either. And I, I was privileged to, to be a part of, of uh, WeTech last summer and I heard a couple of the Alateens talking and one said to the other one, you know, I never drank in the third grade, but I always felt like I could have used one. <laughs> and you know, I have thought about that. I've said it many times from the podium, and it describes perfectly that thing that I couldn't describe. It was, it was that feeling, you know, that I just 
Always felt like I could have used one. I never had the right formula. And it was interesting, last, uh, last Sunday morning, Sally and I went to uh, early Mass, and uh, a young Episcopal priest started talking about the St. Francis prayer. And the minute that he said St. Francis, my ears perked up right away, and, and I wanted to say, I, I know that prayer, you know. But he made the statement that, you know, if our children don't console us, or if they don't understand us, or if they don't make us feel good, we feel like we failed. And then he started to recite the St. Francis prayer about it's better to console and be consoled, to understand rather than be understood. And you know, there was a little part of me because Sally described the four children, and I always felt like I was a failure to one respect because they didn't understand me, they didn't make me feel good, and there were many times that they certainly didn't console me, you know. And then I started thinking about when I was young, and even when I got into business, I fell into that trap, if you were right, I must be wrong. So then I would do it your way, and then if I found somebody doing it better than what you were doing, you must be wrong. Now, I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but it, it just seemed to me that I could never understand that it's all right for both of us to be right until I got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, one of the things that's just as exciting to me about my sobriety is that for the most part, I live in a world today where I fit. I live in a world today where my family fits because of the program. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. Sally told you that I uh, had a little track record before we met. And incidentally, I had no idea she was going to go to Oral Roberts. I was doing pretty good until she got to Oral Roberts, too. <laughs> but I met Sally in, in college. It was after the war. I was in the, the one that Archie Bunker calls the big one, the WW2. That's the one I was in. And uh, I met Sally in an Iowa tavern. Didn't meet her that night. I just, I describe that as, as just looking across this crowded room about where Shirley is. And I, you know, and I said to this fraternity brother of mine, hey, do you know that girl? And uh, he said, well, that's Sally Sears from Des Moines. And this alcoholic mind just said, hey, that's, that's mine. That, you know, that just has to be mine. I had, I had never seen anything any prettier or any lovelier, and I just, you know, that had to be mine. And I just had this one other problem. I was engaged to another girl. <laughs> but you know how we alcoholics are. And uh, I remember uh, I had cashed in my war bonds and I bought a diamond ring and I got drunk for the occasion and I, I called the dorm and, and asked to talk to Sally and she got on the phone and I said, would you meet me in front of the dorm? Uh, she was talking about our generation. At that time you had to be in by 10.30. And so it was about 10 o'clock we met in front of the dorm and uh, in the front seat of the car I, I said, would you bury me and proceeded to put the ring on the wrong finger. And, uh, you know, there should have been a clue right there that she was in trouble. She, she had been talking to the girl that I was previously engaged to, and, and uh, you know, but she fell into this trap 
that I think a lot of you fall into. If he loves me enough, he'll change for me. And I heard Sally say that, you know, you know, if you if you love me as much as you say you do, you won't drink the way you do. And my answer to that was, if I had more responsibility, I wouldn't drink the way I do. If we were to get married and have children, I wouldn't drink the way I do. I just don't have enough responsibility, you know. And uh, a wise old attorney said to me one time that he was just fascinated by the fact that God's most precious gift is turned over to rank amateurs. And, and you know, we, we were of that era where you had children. I mean, not just a child, but you had children. Because I can remember when Sally and I were planning, we would always have three or four names. It was like two boys and two girls. Maybe we'd go for three boys and one girl, or maybe three girls and one. But we always talked about having three or four children. We didn't know why. It was just that we wanted to be accepted by you, and that was part of the plan. And as far as I can remember, you know, that's the way Sally and I felt from the very beginning. It was, how can we fit in your society? And part of that was to get a good job, to have children, to have a picket fence and a, and a fireplace and a cocker spaniel and, and a two-car garage. And all the pictures that we paint, you know, and... And this is the way Sally and I started. It never dawned on us to be considerate of the other one. You know, she talked about love is not looking at each other, it's looking in the same direction. We didn't find that until we got to the program, and you taught us that. So we started out, she was going to be the mother and the homemaker and the housekeeper and have the meals on the table and keep the kids clean and the beds changed and I would go out and earn the living and that was the formula that we put together and I've always been in sales and uh, accepted certain jobs uh, in various parts of the country and and each time we would move even early in our marriage I would hear Sally say to me the next time it's going to be different the next time we move we're going to keep track of all the checks the next time they're not going to know that we've overdrawn the checking account. And the next time there's going to be enough bedrooms and a big enough yard and we'll be closer to school and there'll be a church. And each time we moved, we kept putting this formula together that was going to make us happy. And as far as we both knew, I think we thought we were doing that. You know, it's such a deceptive disease. By the time it deceives you and by the time you deny it, you can actually look at black and call it white and believe it. And you're dealing with a disease powerful enough to kill people that don't have it. And it's an insidious thing if we don't kill each other within the framework of the home, you probably will pick up the newspaper tomorrow on Sunday, and if you scan it close enough, there will be somebody with six DWIs that has jumped a medium and killed a mother and two children. So we're dealing with a very ugly disease. I did come home one evening in Westport, Connecticut, thinking that Sally and the four children would be delighted to see me. And as I came through the door expecting this love and a hug, what I really got was, I can't live like this anymore. What Sally said to me that night was, hey, I just, I'm tired. I'm sick and I'm tired of living the way we live. 
and I'm just tired of being mother and father and banker and priest and chauffeur and you know I asked Sally one time on her birthday what would you like if you could have one thing more than anything else what would you like and she said a full-time chauffeur because the children were of that age where we were in Girl Scouts and we were in Brownies and we were in the Police Athletic League and we were in the Church League and it, and it just seemed like she'd drop one off and pick one up and drop one off and pick one up and then I would either come home or I wouldn't come home and I was the biggest kid of all, you know. She never knew where I was. But I came home that particular evening and Sally said, Hey, I just, I'd rather be dead. And you know how we are. It's, uh, well, I'm tired and I've worked hard all week and can we talk about it in the morning? And on a Saturday morning, Sally, one more time, said, hey, I'd rather be dead. And I remember kind of pounding on the bathroom door with the children in back of me, screaming to Sally, saying, my God, Sally, don't do that. My heavens, don't do that. You know, and I could still hear the children kind of screaming in the background with me. You know, if we cripple our children in the home with the disease of alcoholism, then we can't be too startled within ourselves when they begin to limp in society. And every once in a while, Sally would get a letter, I would get a letter home from school, and it would say, your child has a very apathetic attitude. He is not doing well in school. Your child has a very poor attitude. He is not attentive, and he's not contributing, and he's not living up to his potential. And I remember Sally and I would sit down in the quiet of the dining room and we'd look at each other and our conversation would go like this. I wonder who he's playing with at school that's causing this. There must be something going on in the neighborhood that we don't understand. And you know, here we are, kicking indoors, talking about killing each other. You know, I don't ever remember in college saying to myself, I wonder if I can find a girl that wants to kill herself and we'll get married. <laughs> Just don't ever remember having that sensation. But you know, sooner or later, that's where we were. The girl that I thought was the loveliest, most beautiful person in this whole world was now saying, hey, I would rather be dead. And so, you know, we do what most alcoholics do. We take the wrong one to the psychiatrist for a long time. And that's not to say that I hadn't been to the psychiatrist because shortly after we were married, in about 1951, I began to have anxiety attacks. Those anxiety attacks where you couldn't buy, walk by an open window. The kind of anxiety attacks that you would get on a bus and people would begin to get on the bus with you and you couldn't stand them to be near you so you would want to get off the bus and run. And I had the kind of anxiety attacks that I was scared all the time. And I remember saying to Sally, you know, I, oh, I'm having these terrible anxiety attacks. And, and she said, well, why don't you go to the doctor? And, and I went to our family doctor and I had this examination and he said to me, physically, I don't see anything wrong with you. But mentally, you know, I, I think you need to see a psychiatrist. And in 1951, it wasn't all that chic. And I remember seeing this man of an evening telling him of all the anxieties that I had, thinking that he would say to me, well, we really need to set you down and put you away for a few weeks. But what he said to me was, I'd like to give you this 25 milligram Thorazine three times a day. 
I would like to see you twice a week. And this was in 1951. And we did that for a period of time until he said to me, we have this new thing called Librium. And I would like to send them to you in hundreds. And he would send them to me before you could get it with a prescription. And then he said to me one day, we have this new thing called Valium. And I would like for you to take those. Now you heard me say I did not make it to the program until 1973. From 1951 until 1973, I cannot remember a day that I went without the use of Thorazine, Librium, Valium, Methadrine, alcohol, Anison, Alka-Seltzer, whatever I put in my body. And not once did anybody ever tell me that the combination of the alcohol and the pills could kill me. Now, Sally's dad, who was in this program for 25 years, you know, used to say, God looks out for drunks and little children. And I know that I'm here tonight by God's grace. Sally's dad used to say that he felt 20 years ago that he was part of a fellowship that was going to be the miracle of the century. And I think that's where you and I are. You and I are in what we think, at least I think, and agree with Sally's daddy, what will go down as the miracle of the century. And before I get a, forget, I want to tell you a little something about Sally's father. When I came into the program in 1973, I said to Sally's dad, Dad, why didn't you talk to me about my drinking? Why didn't you talk to me about my alcoholism? You know, I took all the things that you loved the most. I took your daughter, I took your love, I took your money, I took your grandchildren, I took your booze, I took everything that I could get my hands on, and you never talked to me once about my drinking. And he said to me what Ann said in a little different verbiage, you would have resented it so much coming from me that it would have ruined the opportunity for the right person to reach you. God made us all different, so we need each other. If he made us all the same, one of us wouldn't be necessary. And then he said something that I've heard many times in the program. God has gifted each one of us with the ability to touch one other human being that nobody else can touch. And I'm all fascinated, always fascinated, because... All of us are here tonight because one other human being had the ability to touch you deeper than all the rest. And I've said it many times, we must drive Al-Anon's absolutely crazy. For 26 years, Sally had said to me, please don't drink like that, or don't drink so much, or can't you drink like him, or can't you see what you're doing to us? My God, you're tearing up the family. And one day in a halfway house in Shreveport, Louisiana, I met a man that I had never seen before in my entire life, and he said, you don't have to drink like that anymore. And I said, okay, I haven't had one since. Don't you know that Sally ran around for about a week wondering what he said? You know, it was, it was crazy time. We did go back to Iowa because, really, a well-meaning psychiatrist had our best interest at heart. 
and said, hey, you need to get back to Iowa where you belong. Get back where your roots are, where your family is, where you've got a little financial stability. Get off the road. Learn to love your children. And we went back there, and uh, the only thing that we didn't have in our blueprint for living was the disease of alcoholism. We just did not see the disease of alcoholism in our daily existence. Here's her father in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She has just gone through a big session with psychiatric therapy. I have been relieved of my immediate responsibilities with the company. We're trying to go back and put our family back together, and neither one of us, Sally or myself, looked at it as the disease of alcoholism. I was a periodic drunk, like living with a time bomb. And one weekend I went on either a three or four day drunk, I can't remember. But I do know that if you do that often enough, they come into your life. And I call them they because I don't know where they come from. All I know, if you do periodic drunks often enough, they get in your living room and say strange things like, you need to go to the alcohol and psychiatric clinic at the University of Iowa. And if the evidence becomes so tangible, you know, that you just can't wiggle anymore, you begin to say funny things like, okay, I'll go. And I remember sitting across the desk from a psychiatrist on a Monday morning at this alcohol and psychiatric clinic and John was saying things to me like when you drink you hurt people anymore Albert and I said yes and he said when you drink you get in an awful lot of trouble and I said that's true too then he said I'm going to tell you something about alcohol and this is the first thing that I ever heard about alcohol that ever made any sense to me. And it still makes sense to me to this day. And he very quietly said this. Albert, like some people are allergic to strawberries, eat them and break out in a rash. When you get an ounce of alcohol in you, you have hives of the brain. <laughs> and I said, my God, John, I'm allergic to alcohol. He said, that's it. And now I'm going to tell you what you have to do to stay out of trouble. Some of you may have heard this. I said, what's that, John? He said, don't drink. And he said, I suggest that you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and that you talk to a, a gentleman from Alcoholics Anonymous. So in September of 1967, I talked to this marvelous man. His name was Gil Voss. He is now dead. And this was in Iowa City, and I was back there just a few weeks ago to, to see his memorial. But Gill spent one afternoon with me doing what it tells us to do in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, working with others. And he just, you know, he told me of all the things that had happened to him. He told me about all the shame and the guilt and the degradation and the torn up family and the businesses and the divorce and the bankruptcies and the jails and the DWIs. And he just kept going down this list. And up here, my alcoholic mind kept saying, my God, that's a terrible story. That's a, you know, if I get that bad... I'll do something about my drinking because I hadn't done any of that yet. I just hadn't done that yet. And I remember telling Sally that it was a terrible story. And if I get as bad as him, or if I get as bad as your father, you know, I'll do something about my drinking. But we did go to an AA meeting that night. That was the only meeting that, that we went to. And I, I said to Sally, hey, I'm not like them. I just, I'm not like them. And we went, uh, I went six or seven months without a drink, and one night in the fall during the football season, we were at a very special party, and a man offered me a drink, and I said, no, thank you. 
And then I went over to Sally and I said, Sally, what do you think about my having a drink? It's been six or seven months. And the two of us discussed my taking a drink. And if you talk to alcoholics long enough, we'll get you to say that magic phrase. Well, it's up to you. And when you say to alcoholics, well, it's up to you, you know, you've given us too much slack. So I went over to the bar and I said, I will have a scotch and water. And I had one and I had two and I didn't feel any ugly sensations about it. And on the way home, I said to Sally, I will just drink when we have company. I think I'm okay. I'll just have white wine when we have fish. I'll just have red wine when we have beef. I'll just have bourbon on Mondays. And it's all in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I, I love the phrase that it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. No matter what you do, the ship goes down. And I, and I kept looking for that combination that was going to keep me level and I could never find it. It's what Sally talked about in the second step, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And, and that was the insanity of it. And then they got in our living room and said, we're going to take your house and uh, we're going to auction off your furniture. And now, you know, I don't have to tell you what was happening to the children in the midst of this. The daughter got to be 18 and left. You know, if there was any option at all, they went away to college and they didn't come back. And they didn't come home for Thanksgiving and they tried not to come home for Christmas. And then the oldest son got into drugs and sold drugs and trafficked drugs and jailed for drugs. And he was in that campus rebellion in the 60s that nobody seemed to understand anyway. And I remember Sally and I on a Christmas, it wasn't Christmas time, but it was about a week before Christmas. I think we took some presents to Chuck. He was living in a small shack down by a river. And I mean just a small shack down by a river. And, and we rapped on the door and, and Chuck came to the door and Sally and I had these presents and and said, we'd like for you to have these. And, and he just took them and set them down on the ground and, and said, I don't know the two of you, and closed the door. And that was the relationship with our oldest son. And the middle son, you know, he just went off to college. He just stayed away from us. And the youngest son, he had to stay with us. And I used a friend. I used a friend that was with the company that I was with when I was in New York. It was a company called Owens Corning Fiberglass. And I said, Dick, I'm in, I'm in real deep trouble. And I really could use an endorsement for a job in Louisiana. And so he made it possible for me to get a job in Shreveport. And we went down there and all I did was continue the drinking because I just couldn't live without it. I just couldn't get along without it. You know, alcohol was the only thing that would let me live in two worlds at the same time. Alcohol was the only thing that kind of altered that reality. No matter how bad it was, it took away some of the pain, and I had to have it. And Sally was working at J.C. Penney's. And one night, uh, I got drunk in Shreveport, and uh, I saw these red lights in my rearview mirror, and, and I thought I'd better pull over in a hurry, and I'll be careful. Because I had heard Caddo Parish police deputies in Louisiana are very angry and very mean people. And so I had electric windows on this car, and after I managed to pull the car over to the side, these two Caddo Parish police deputies came around to the side, and I hit this button, and the electric window went down, and they said, could we have your license? And I said, of course, and I, I handed it to them out the window, and then I made a very grave error. I, 
I drove off and left them standing there. You know, that sounds very funny now, but I was talking to an attorney about a week ago, and he said, you realize you're lucky you didn't get shot? You know, it just didn't seem like that big a deal at the time. But, but I remember being draped over the hood of their car and the indignity of it all and hoping that nobody was watching. You know, you know how we are. We're out in the middle of the street. You know, you're over the police hood, and the handcuffs are going on, and your alcoholic mind says, I hope nobody's watching this. You know <laughs> And we got down to the police station, and uh, they said, you're drunk. And I said, yes, and uh, we're going to take your blood. I said, wonderful. And, uh, you know, I got in the jail cell, and, and I've tried to, to relive this experience. I've talked about it many times from the podium, but I've tried to relive this because it was just an instant bolt or a flash as the bars came together on this cell, and they finally met, and that sound that God created for drunks in jail when those, when those bars go clank, just for a second, I saw myself on top of the glass building in New York where my office was overlooking Central Park to the jail cell in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I said to myself, damn, I may have a drinking problem. Maybe. And I want to tell you that's exactly what my mind said after all of this. I may have a drinking problem. Maybe. And they said I could call, and there wasn't anybody to call, so I called a good customer, and he came down and got me out of jail, and, and he took me home that evening, and, and at exactly 6 o'clock in the morning, I called an Episcopal priest. And I said, Father Paul, I am in deep trouble. You know, one of your sheep has gone astray, and I am in deep trouble. And he said, can you get down to the church? And I said, yes, I can. And I got down there, and we started to talk. And I told him that I had this problem with drinking and the family was torn apart and I, I just didn't know what to do. And he said, I want you to go to this halfway house. There's a halfway house in Shreveport, Louisiana. It's called the Bridge House. And he said, I want you to go down there and there's a man down there who was a 74-year-old retired electrical contractor and I think you can relate to him. And I thought, my God, how could I relate to a 74-year-old retired electrical contractor in a halfway house? I mean, I'm kind of a high-class guy, and, and here they are talking about halfway houses. But, you know, I didn't have any place else to turn. I wasn't looking for Alcoholics Anonymous. I just wanted to get the heat off. I wanted to get the pain out of my body. And I went down that morning, and I, I sat at the end of a table about like this in front of Bill, and they sat me at the end, and there were three Bills there that morning, and and one of them said, when did you have your last drink? And I said, well, I had my last drink last night, and I got these $1,200 worth of hot checks, and the house is gone, and the car is gone, and I'm about to get fired, and three of the four kids are gone, and, God, you know, and I, I began to cry, and, and one of them turned to the other one and said, boy, he sure sounds like one of us. You know, and I, that's, what, that's what we sound like when we get here. And then... You know, and, and one guy said, would you, do, would you go to any lengths to get sober? I said, my God, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And then one of them very softly said to me, would you go to seven meetings in a row? And I said, seven meetings in a row? God, you know, and I began to look around, and there they were on the wall. I'd seen them in Sally's dad's house, you know, that live and let live. Easy does it. First things first. And up here I said, my God, they're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I just can't believe they're really talking about that. And this wise old man somehow sensed that I wasn't in the boat yet. 
And he just kind of put his arm around me and said, Hey, we need to go for a ride. I have a friend over at Shepherd Hospital, and I want to visit with him. He's in the alcoholic ward. And, and I thought, Oh, he's just taking me to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, he said this strange thing. You know, Albert, I never did quit drinking. And that's all he said. And I started thinking about that cure. And the priest was right. I could relate to that. I didn't know how he was doing it, but I liked what he said. And we met his friend in the hospital, and on the way back to the halfway house, he did it to me one more time. He said, Albert, you know, I never did quit drinking. He says, as a matter of fact, I may even take a drink tomorrow. And I said, Bill, how long have you been doing that? He said, what's that, Albert? I said, that not quit drinking. He said, 27 years. <laughs> but I may take one tomorrow, you know. And, and I just, I was fascinated with this man. He was everything that I wanted to be just instantly. You know, here was a man that had the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous carved in his life so that I could see it and touch it. And he was kind of saying to me, hey, if you walk the way I'm walking, you know, you won't have to hurt anymore. And I was frightened, and I, and I thought, my God, you're going to take my freedom away from me. You know, and, and, and my right to die. I had a hold of this rock, and I'm going to the bottom of the lake, and everybody around me is saying, let go of the rock. And I'm saying, hell no. You know, I'm, I'm going to the bottom with this thing. You know, you're going to take my freedom away from me. And he said, let me talk to you a little bit about freedom. He said, you know, I have a dog that I put out in my backyard every day, and it just runs within this fence and it has plenty to eat and it, it barks at the birds and it plays all day long and said, you know, it just is free to be whatever it wants to be. On the other hand, he said, I could really let that dog be free and I could open up the back gate and I could let that dog out and it could run free to get hit by a truck or maybe not get fed and starved or maybe picked up by somebody that doesn't love it nearly as much as I do. He said, you know, you can be anything you want to be and as free as you want to be as long as you stay within the fence and the framework of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that began to make sense to me. And I said, but Bill, I'm a salesman. My God, if that program should accidentally work and I get well and go back out there to earn a living, somebody's going to take me to a bar and ask me if I want a drink. And my God, I won't know what to tell them. And this marvelous man just looked, I can still see the expression in his face. He just looked at me so quietly and he said, Well, you might tell him the truth. You haven't tried that in a long time. <laughs> and you know what? I didn't know what he was saying to me. I really didn't. I said, Bill, I don't know what that means. And he looked at me very quietly and lovingly and he said, You know, I know you don't know what that means. He said, Here's what you tell them. Tell them you can't drink that stuff. It gets you drunk. I said, that'll never work. He said, oh, yes, it will. He said, they understand that. When they drink it, it gets them drunk. I said, oh, you know. Hadn't really thought about it that way, you know. Well, now, I kept that up there, you know, because I heard in the program, hey, don't throw it away. Put it under the chair. Stick it on the shelf. Because one of these days, you know, thank God for the old timers. It was about 90 days in the program. I had a marvelous job, and an ex-Dallas cowboy was selling radio spots. And, and he came by the distributorship, and he took me to a bar called The Hungry Hunter. And we went right up to the bar and sat down, and Dave said to me, Would you like a drink, Albert? I said, Oh, God, Dave, I can't drink that stuff. It gets me drunk. He said, Oh, God, don't drink it. I said, Okay, I won't. 
Christ, it was terrible. This marvelous man said to me, and again, I've heard this since I've been in the program, he said, you know, it's really a fairly easy program, Albert. You know, you just don't drink and you change every other area of your life. Now, he said, I tell you what, you've always traveled and you've always been in sales. You're not going to do that anymore. I said, Bill, that's all I know. He said, I don't care. He said, you're going to sell used cars. I said, I've never sold used cars. He said, you're going to sell used cars. And I said, the smartest thing that I've ever said in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I said, yes, sponsor. I'd want to talk to him every once in a while, you know, about what I thought. And he would say to me, it's not important what you think. If your best thinking got you to a jail cell, you shouldn't think anyway. <laughs> you know, it's tough to argue with rationale like that, you know. So I sold used cars. And then finally one day he said to me, there's a good job opportunity for you in Dallas. And, and, you know, I'll help you to fly over. This was a man that Sally and I had never known, had never met. Here's a man that got me out of jail, kept me out of jail, stood in the court with me, paid my $385 fine, lent me money, got my job. You know, all those things are in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It explains how we're supposed to help each other in there. You know, I have to remember that anything that I'm fortunate enough to have tonight standing here, the job that I have, the car that I drive, my beautiful wife, my children, whatever I have, came from exactly the same source as my sobriety. And I have to remember that, because you taught me that. I went over for this job interview, and just before I left, I said to Bill, is there anything in particular that you think I ought to tell them? And you know how sponsors kind of get that glazed look when you ask them the same thing over and over again, and they always give you the same answer. You know, you've got to tell them the truth. You know, but I would say, but Bill, I need this job. This is going to be a good job, and this will put Sally and I back together, and I really need this one. And he would just very quietly say, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. Somewhere in that interview, Albert, tell them you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I flew over, and I interviewed with one of the, uh, the vice presidents of, of RCA at the time for this distributorship, and at the very end, I said to Art, Art, there's something you need to know. I've uh, had this problem, and uh, I'm an active member of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and my wife Sally is a very active member of the Al-Anon family group, and felt that you should know that. And I got on the plane and flew back to Shreveport thinking I would have loved that job. And in about two weeks, they called and said to Sally and I, would you please come to Dallas as part of our management team for this distributorship? And Sally and I went to Dallas, and we had each other, and we had one son who had so much hate and anger for me that we wound up in a psychiatrist's office in a small 10 by 10 room hitting each other with pillows so we couldn't kill each other, so we could get out the anger and the hostility that was in his soul. And he had so much hate for me that he had this loaded shotgun and this hunting knife that he would keep in his bedroom, and when I would come to see him, he would just put one hand on the shotgun. And there was a family in Shreveport that was kind enough to take him for six months while Sally and I were trying to survive in the program. Now, I'm going to tell you something about John. Because I've talked about crippling the disease, and I think we have a responsibility of, of helping them to get well. John was a junior in high school, and we began to get these letters that his, 
attitude was bad and he was apathetic and he wasn't doing well in school and they thought he was on Valium and they thought he was on drugs and, and finally we had accumulated about six or seven letters from four or five teachers and a, and a phys ed instructor and one coach that had kicked him off the basket or the wrestling team and the golf team and, and finally they, you know, we just couldn't ignore the situation anymore and they called and said, would you please come up to the high school? We need to talk to you about John. And I remember we sat around this particular morning. There was kind of the, the guidance counselor and a phys ed teacher and an assistant principal and a principal and then all the teachers. And then John was to my right about where Bill is and myself. And each one of them started around the room taking their pound of flesh, telling me how bad John was of his behavior and his attitude and, and his lack of contribution. And finally it came around to John and they said to John, was there anything that he wanted to say? And John said, no. And they asked me if there was anything that I would like to say, and I said, yes, there was. I said, you know, if I were 17 years old, and I had to get up every day of my school life with the idea that I was going to come up here and try and face the eight of you clowns, I wouldn't want to do that. I really wouldn't. There's something that you need to know about this young man sitting to my right. He is the product of an alcoholic home. I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're trying to restructure our life, and he's trying to restructure his life from the disease of alcoholism. And it was like somebody snapped on the light bulb that the guidance counselor over here said, you know, John is not a very good reader. As a matter of fact, he's a very poor reader. And, and when he gets behind in his reading and his studies, he has a tendency to choose the teachers one-on-one -on -one and, and cause a commotion in the class. And, you know, just almost around the room in one wave, each of them began to pick this up and said, well, I think we can get John some reading lessons over at this junior college. Well, yeah, I can work with John over here. And it was like, hey, there was an explanation for his behavior. And the bottom line of that, for a kid who was just about to be thrown out by the throat, was two years later, he was offered a full athletic manager scholarship to SMU. He wasn't equipped to take it. He wasn't equipped to handle it. And he came to Sally and I and said, you know what, I know scholastically I'm not equipped to take advantage of this offer, but I'm so grateful to have had it offered to me. It made him feel like something. And I just throw that in, you know, that we have the healing power within the program of Al-Anon and Alateen and Alcoholics Anonymous. We're the luckiest people in the world that we've got a place to come ventilate our disease. You know, you and I tell each other what we hide from the rest of the world. And my God, aren't we fortunate. My God, aren't we fortunate. About seven, maybe eight years ago, Sally and I one weekend were looking at townhouses. I mean, that's what alcoholics do when you don't have any money, you look at houses. That's what we did. And uh, it was a beautiful townhouse, and it was $50,000, and the lady said you could finance this easily, and it's 5% down, 8 and 3 quarters. And, you know, I just wanted to laugh and giggle because Sally and I had been shopping the day before, and I'd tried to cash a check, and somebody had asked me for a driver's license and two major credit cards, and... I didn't have a driver's license and two major credit cards. But that evening I called my sponsor and I said to Bill, Bill, Sally and I were looking at houses today. He said, how nice. He said, tell me more about that. 
And so I began to talk about my sponsor and to my sponsor about this house, and, and he just very quietly said to me, as he always did, Do you want to buy that house? And I said, Of course. We well, said, I'll tell you what to do. You write a letter. I said, To who? He said, The loan committee. I said, What loan committee? He said, The one that's going to finance your house. He said, I'll write a letter. I'll get a couple of people in the program to, letter, to write a letter. And here's what you do. You write a letter and tell them where you work and what your responsibility is and how much you make. And you're an active member of the Alpha Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that same letter, you tell them where Sally works and what she makes and her area of responsibility. And that she's a very active member of the Al-Anon family group. And then you take it to this loan committee that this lady was talking about that could finance your house. And on a Monday morning, Sally and I drove up in front of a savings and loan that we had never seen before to a loan officer that we had never met, and we got very quiet in the front seat of the car and held hands, because that's what it tells us to do in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the two of us said in unison, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And you know when Sally and I got out of that car, whatever happened was okay. You know, it wasn't our game anymore. We had surrendered that. Whatever was going to come down was going to come down. And we went in and we started to talk to this loan officer, and I'm still intimidated by forms because the very first question is, if you have lived there for less than one year, please list below. And alcoholics always put C attached. You only got a bunch of things. <laughs> and the second question is just as bad. If you have worked there for less than one year, list below. And you put C attached. You know, I, I love what Clancy says. You know, alcoholic resumes have got big holes in them that say self-employed. I mean, we got, we got big areas in there that we have to cover. But we got down to where it says credit, and I said to the man, we don't have any credit and we don't have any money, but we have this magic letter. You know, and, you know, we must look like Harry Krishnas to some people. I don't know, but we handed the man this letter and said, hey, you give this to the loan committee and you decide whether Sally and I should be a part of your community or not. You determine whether Sally and I should have $50,000. And it was about, I guess, three weeks later, they called and said, come get your $50,000. And we have a beautiful home today. Not a house. We have a beautiful home that is an Al-Anon home and an AA home. You know, we know where that home came from. About four years ago, Sally and I were chairing a meeting, and Sally asked if there was anything anybody would like to talk about. And this man said, yes, I'd like to talk about something. I just got out of this treatment center, and I have this wife and four children, and they don't understand me. And... And he went on for about an hour, and after the meeting, I introduced myself and said, My name is Albert, and he said, My name's Jim. And I said, What do you do, Jim? And he said, I work for Owens Corning Fiberglass. And I said, Oh, God. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it, and I said, Well, who do you answer to? And he gave me the name of a man, and I said, Well, he used to be my branch manager in Kansas City 20 years ago. And about two and a half years ago, Jim came to me and said, why don't you come back to work for Owens Corning Fiberglass? And I just laughed. You know, I said, oh, God, Jim, you know, there, there's just no way. I drank my way out of there in 1966. I almost killed the family. There's a, there's a sheet in that portfolio up there that says, don't ever let him back, you know. And he said, no, we, 
we have this new program, this employees assistance program, and, and of the 24,000 employees that we have, and incidentally, I'm going to update this. I, I think the last time I talked, I said we had 24,000 employees, over 1,700 of them are in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just had a chance to visit last week with two officers of our EAP program, and they said of the 24,000 employees that Owens Corning Fiberglass has, over 1,900 of them are in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, I can't believe that, you know. Jim said, write a letter. You know the vice president's up there. And I, I almost let my mind slip for a second and say, I wonder what I should tell them. <laughs> I wrote this letter. And I wrote it as honestly and as openly and as willing as I could about the fact that I had torn up a lot of lives and friendships and families. And, and I had talked to Jim. And just the mere thought of going back to work for a corporation that I loved that much was just, I just couldn't believe that. You know, Linda said it in her introduction. If I had put down on paper what I thought I had wanted for myself, I would have cheated the whole game. They wrote me back and said, send a resume. And I laughed, you know, because I knew they had a resume from the time I was born to my very first day in school. So I just wrote out an alcoholic resume. September 6, 1973, driving while intoxicated, jail, Shreveport jail. Fired from last job because of my alcoholic performance. Sold used cars two months. And I just listed my life and existence in the recovery of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and shot it back up to Toledo. And about a week they called and said, would you come up for interviews? <laughs> and I said, terrific, you know. Now, I'm sure if some of you work for large corporations, you know that there's just a certain amount of mandatory questions that they ask everybody. But this morning, the first man just kind of sat me down at the desk and said, I want to tell you. I've never seen a man whose resume has him starting out in jail. I, you know, I just, it drove him crazy. He, you know, he just, and, and he would ask me questions like, why do you want to come back to work for us? And I said, well, I never worked for you sober. It just seemed like it would be a lot of fun. You know. And, you know, we started looking at my age, and, and I would say, besides that, you know, there, there aren't many 54-year-old ex-drunks that you corporations could get. Yeah, and that's the kind of conversation that we had. And finally, I got back down to the man that was my boss 20 years ago, and the interview went like this. He said, close the door, Albert. He said, how's Sally and the kids? I said, terrific. I said, how's Marion and your kids? He said, hey, fantastic. He said, are you ready to come back to work? I said, you bet. And they bridged 15 years, and I went back to work for Owens Corning Fiberglass. I've been with Owens Corning Fiberglass for about two and a half years now, and four or five months ago, two of my major customers came to me and said, would you please come to work for us? And I said, no, hey, I, I'm just so happy where I am. And uh, each time I would go to see them, they'd say, why don't you come to work for us? And I'd say, no, hey, look, I'm, I'm 56 years old. I've had two heart attacks, an angiogram, a triple bypass. You know, I do everything better than I did 30 years ago. I just can't do it as long. They said, that's okay, you know, I, I said, no, I hate, to, you know. So they kept doing this, and, and uh, I said, well, hey, I've, sobriety is my main thing. I go to these conferences, and I like to be gone on Friday, and sometimes I don't get home till Mondays. And, and they said, hey, that's great, you know. And, I, and no matter what, I, you know, and I kept thinking, hey, something's not right here. I'll, I'll just put a monetary figure out there that, that it won't work at all. And what happened to me is what has happened to me ever since I've been in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
they said, hey, you write your own ticket. Whatever you want, we'd like to have you. And you put it down on paper. I have never lost anything because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you were to give me a piece of paper and say, list the things that you've lost because you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, or that Sally would have lost because she's a, a member of Al-Anon, you know, we couldn't put anything on the paper. By the same token, if you were to say to me, would you please list the things that you lost before you got here, you know, you could write a small novel. There's a marvelous story that I love about the young boy in school. Teddy wasn't retarded, but he was very slow, and he was the brunt of a lot of laughter and jokes from the other children. Not meaning to, but, you know, how that goes. And the teacher one day gave all the children an assignment, a little empty carton to go get something that was created by God. And so the children went out that evening, and the following day they all came back with their little cartons. And she called on Jane, and Jane brought it up, and they opened up the carton, and on the inside was a little butterfly. And the teacher said to Jane, only God could have created something that beautiful. And then she called on Herman, and, and Herman brought his up, and there was a rose on the inside of the carton. And, and she said to him, you know, only God could have created something that beautiful. And then she called on Teddy, and he brought his carton up, and they opened it up, and it was empty. And all the kids began to laugh, and the teacher said to Teddy, Teddy, I don't quite understand. You were to have gotten something that was created by God that was beautiful. And he said to the teacher, You know, the most beautiful thing that I know was the resurrection, and that came from an empty tomb. And sometimes I think you and I are the resurrected one, and that God empties us so that we can be filled with the program. Sally and I are so grateful, so grateful to be a part of this assembly and of this fellowship. In a few weeks, Christmas will be here. And those children that wanted nothing to do with us, one by one, have said to us, four children, four grandchildren, a son-in-law later, can we come be with you this Christmas because there's no place we would rather be than with you? And Sally and I owe that to you and to your love for us. And I'm here to tell you tonight that we as a family are so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, Alateen, Pre-Alateen, Family, whatever. <laughs> All I know is if you are new in the program or if you're old in the program, this is where it is. This is the excitement of living. Thank you so much. I love you all.